You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number 418. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoor Station and a jam-packed busy show. This is part one of a fantastic two-part interview with the one and only Chris Townsend. It's mainly about his recent 450-mile trip from Yosemite Valley to Death Valley, but we also talk about so much more too, and I'm confident you are really going to enjoy it. On the Outdoor Station website, I have mentioned before there is a sponsorship support page where, if you wish, you can make a donation towards the running costs of the station and we, in return, will make you an executive producer for one or more podcasts. Well, Eduardo Dorado has been very generous and he has the honour of being the executive producer for these next two podcasts with Chris Townsend. It's the least we can do to say thank you. Talking of thanks, the newsletter section in the Outdoor Station website is filling up rapidly too, with many, many more people signing up and making some great interesting suggestions for interviews and pointing out some cottage manufacturers of interest they want to hear more about. So, to name-check a few of those, we have Rich Jones, Gary Noakes, Rob Olerenshaw Ward, Nigel Rhodes, Eduardo Dorado, David Hind, Adrian Cam, Ivan Fletcher, Dina Bosomworth, Fiona Chatwind, Phil Davis, Paul Harris, Jeff McCarthy, Sarah Jackson and Ian McDougall. And several of these people have suggested they want to hear about Chris Townsend. So you're going to be very, very happy. But we have a lot of great suggestions they've come up with, including a cyclist who cycled from Stoke to Singapore, Kate Tyler, who I have approached and mentioned before, um, and Terry Abram, to name but a few. So if you have some suggestions, please pop along to the newsletter and do that there. Now, I must also mention Jane Jennifer, uh, who is also a new listener, and she took the time to write a lovely note thanking the Outdoor Station for the introduction to the Tough Girl podcast, as it's given her more stories of inspirational women to listen to. Our pleasure, Jane. But of course, as I record this now, we have just gone into December 2016. And I am sure many people want to know who has won the Outdoor Station very first November competition to win a Evernew Titanium Panset. Well, this is how it works. All the entries are correlated into the competition provider's website. This morning, it automatically closed, and I simply clicked the button entitled Choose a Random Winner. And a number appeared. Earlier on today, I dialed it. Hello, this is Bob calling the outdoor station. Can you hear me? I can, yes. Who am I speaking with, please? You're speaking to Sarah Lawrence. Sarah Lawrence. Well, Sarah, you know you entered our competition at the Outdoor Station in November to win some sexy titanium Avenue cooking gear. 
Yes, I remember. Yes, well, it's my pleasure to tell you that you've won. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, brilliant. That's great news. What sort of outdoor pastime do you participate in? I mainly do hiking um, and sort of long distance walks and overnight staying with featuring cooking. So the pans will be great. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Well, hold the line for a minute and I'll take all your details. Thank you. That's brilliant. I never win competitions, so that's great. (laughs) Self-powered travel. Since 2005, over 8 million people have listened and over 1 million have watched the videos. Podcasts which look at all aspects of self-powered travel, sharing the passion, appreciation and understanding for the outdoors world. The Outdoors Station is a free media entertainment service dedicated to the self-powered outdoors enthusiast. The prize has now left the building and is already on the way to Sarah. And during the show, you will hear details for our December competition, where you can win a complete DD hammock camping setup. But more of that later. Let's now get into the meat of the show with Chris Townsend. Now, if you don't know Chris by name, a quick Google and you will see his extensive CV of books, published works and involvement with the outdoors world generally, making him one of the most respected sources of information and knowledge in the world. And it was my honour to spend an hour with him this week talking about his recent visit to the States. Of course, you'll find on the Outdoor Station website all the various links to many of the things we discuss. I've just returned from a walk from Yosemite Valley in the High Sierra in California to Death Valley. So through the mountains of the High Sierra and then across desert ranges to Death Valley itself. A distance in the end of about 450 miles. When you look at a trip like this, Chris, do you, is this an established route or are you sort of piecing together various walks that you've discovered from doing your research? It's a bit of both. I'd wanted to go back to the High Sierra for, for many years. I was a bit shocked when I discovered it was 14 years since I'd last been there, given that it's a favourite area. But I'd also discovered a route from Death Valley to Mount Whitney, which is from the lowest point in the USA, um, Babwater in Death Valley, which is 282 feet below sea level, to the summit of Mount Whitney, which is the highest peak in the the 48 contiguous states, at 14,464 feet. And a guy called Brett Tucker, who runs the Simplicity website, had worked out a backcountry route from Badwater to the summit of Mount Whitney. And I thought, well, that sounds like a great route to take. Now, I call it a route. It's not a trail. There's no signs. And it pieces together old trails, cross-country sections, dirt roads. So you have to find the route yourself. But at least, um, you know, Brett's route gives you details of a guideline and maps with the route on and so on. For the High Sierra, you could follow the John Muir Trail from Yosemite Valley all the way to Mount Whitney, uh, which, which I've done in the past, but I didn't want to do that. So I put together from maps mainly 
my own route from Yosemite Valley. I went over to Kings Canyon, which I wanted to visit again, and then across to Mount Whitney. So that bit was my own route, but the High Sierra section was all on trails, some of them unmaintained and quite rough, some of them because they're little used, fading into the wilderness, but they were trails. Am I right in thinking that from a American perspective then, this was actually real bushwhacking uh, approach? I know we have a very... Um, a different experience, certainly in Scotland, where you can roam where you want to roam. But as I understand it, would I be right in saying that most of America's uh, backcountry is marked in some format or other? Yeah, you can go where you like. Um, the High Sierra, people who do off-trail routes are generally above timberline. Because the problem with doing off-trail routes below timberline is that it really would be bushwhacking. There's an awful lot of dense forest. Navigation would be quite hard. Quite often, you, you know, you might spend hours fighting through dense thickets and hardly getting anywhere at all. But people, there are routes. I mean, there's a high-level route um, for which there's a guidebook that Steve Roper wrote, which is all, or nearly all above timberline, where... It's, if you like, it's a bit more like the Scottish Highlands in that you've got a lot of steep terrain, you've got a lot of rocks and scree to deal with, but you're not in dense forest. However, the section from Mount Whitney, well, from Owens Valley to Death Valley, that, that really did involve some bushwhacking, and hardly anybody goes walking there at all except for the highest peak in Death Valley, Telescope Peak, which is 11,050 feet. I went up that. That was the only place in the whole week I was on the desert section where there was a real footpath and where I met other walkers. Otherwise, it was completely empty. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, I, w I was using GPS, map and compass to navigate and having to find my way over some you know, very difficult terrain. Yes, I was going to ask you about the, the navigation. I noticed on your blog, on your website, that you showed a picture of the range of maps and a couple of the books there. Uh, but did you find that you couldn't have managed without either the compass or the GPS uh, in particular? Definitely. It, only in a few places. But where they were essential, they really were. Um, I mean, the best example was the descent from Telescope Peak into Death Valley, which is over 9,000 feet of descent. But it starts off with 2,000 feet down a very steep scree slope, which was awkward, and I had to take care negotiating it. There weren't any navigation problems, you just went straight down. But that led to a very broad ridge with a lot of spurs going off either side into deep side canyons. And this ridge was covered with a pinion pine forest. And I couldn't really see much. And because it was fairly, this was bushwhacking again, fairly dense forest, lots of fallen trees, lots of spiny shrubs. So I was weaving about all over the place. And a couple of times I'd started descending parallel spur ridges, not the ones I was on. And for that, I navigated, I used the GPS to pinpoint 
where I was. And then I knew, you know, I need to go left or right to get back roughly into the center of the ridge again. Without the GPS mapping and the GPS, that would have been really difficult. And I might have found myself well on the way down into, you know, the wrong side canyon and have to climb back up again. But I also found in a few places, when I say compass, I had a silver compass with me. I never used it because I only ever needed rough directions. And I had an altimeter watch with a you know, digital compass on it. And I used that for the rough directions. So the, G- the GPS mapping to get me on the right track. And then look at the compass to see which direction I should be walking and use that for the actual walking. That combination worked quite well. So did you did you plot the route or the approximate route into your GPS system before you actually you know, went to America? No. No, I could have done. It's available um, in the package you can buy from Simplicity. But somehow I, I had view ranger mapping of the US and I couldn't get it. Technically, I couldn't do it to get it to work with view ranger. So I just had the mapping. What I did do, though, was I printed out the Simplicity maps, which have got the route marked on them. But again, when you're not on the trail for the cross-country sections, having a, you know, a red line marked on the map isn't actually much help when you can't see where you're going or, as in some cases, like getting out of the head of this desert canyon. It wasn't a question of following the line on the map. It was a question of how to get through all the little crags and drop-offs to the top of the ridge, which couldn't be done as a straight line. As I say, the, the, L, the low to high route, as um, Brett Tucker calls it, it is a route. You know, it's not a trail. It's not, you don't have a detailed description of exactly where to go. You have points and a rough route between them, and you make your own way. So in some respects, it it really was old-fashioned line of sight. Um, I'm going that way. That's that peak over there is where I'm going or that valley or that that tree line or whatever and choosing the the best path. Yes. Yeah, very much. With your experience in mind with all the places that you have walked, I mean, is that quite exciting from a way of travelling? Yes. Yeah. It's compared with, um, you know, walking on on a clear footpath, you know, with signposts and a guidebook and all the rest of it, it's much more challenging. It's also much more intense because you have to be thinking all the time. Where am I going? Am I going the right way? If I choose this this way up here, will I be able to link it, you know, with the ridge I need to get to, or would it be better to go that way? Sometimes I found myself retreating, um, Early on in the desert section in the Inyo Mountains, I was going up the canyon called Longjong Canyon, and I needed to get out of the head of the canyon. And I thought this very steep, loose slope would lead to a saddle that would then lead to the top of the canyon. So I went up it precariously, but when I got to the crest, there was just a drop off the other side and a cliff next to me. So I then had to descend part of the way which was worse than going up this steep slope and do a traverse across to where I should have been 
and all of this, yeah, it very much makes you live in the moment. All that matters is solving the next bit of the route. You know, all that mattered then was getting out of the canyon. And you don't think about anything else. You don't think about where you've been or what's coming next. You're totally involved in the route at that time. So although on the map it was approximately 450 miles and you were planning this in the comfort of, of your own home in Scotland there, you obviously... Did you did you calculate it was going to take you 32 days with this experience in mind that you would be hunting for, for routes and spending a lot of time going back and forward, or was that purely a guesstimate? Uh, well, my perfect plan, which obviously didn't happen was that it would take 25 days. So it took me a bit longer, but I allowed for extra days um, because perfect plans don't usually work out. They look great on paper, but they don't allow for reality. When you sign up for the Outdoor Station newsletter, you have the option to give us feedback on our shows. You also have the opportunity to suggest people of interest you would like to hear more about. You can also suggest UK campsites, which you feel may be unique, and cottage manufacturers who would appreciate a little exposure to our wider audience. The Outdoor Station. Sharing the passion, appreciation and understanding for the outdoors world. Wow, okay, okay. I normally talk gear at the end, but in some respects, because I can visualise that you are very much in a solitary situation here, uh, and as you say, you're doing a bit of bushwhacking, there's a lot of retracing your steps. Um, what, what, was the, what was the pack weight you were taking with you? Because obviously, if you take too much in those sort of conditions, it can be pretty tough going. I mean, the weather was, was like a reasonable summer, a reasonable British summer, was it? Well, um more like autumn. One of the reasons for going in the autumn was you've got two conflicting potential weather problems with this route. Now, the best time to go hiking in the High Sierra is summer. July, July, August, first half of September. That's when the trails are crowded. That's the ideal time to be there. However, the lower sections of the desert and Death Valley, nobody goes hiking in the summer because they're far too hot. So you don't want to be there in the summer. Now, snow starts to arrive in the high Sierra on and off in October, though there's never usually very much and it melts off quickly. November, the winter starts in earnest. However, the desert starts to cool down the end of September, early October. So the window that gives you the best chance of good weather in both places is to go through the Sierra late, Sierra, late September, early October, before the snow, but get down to the desert when it started to cool down so it's not too hot for hiking. But that does mean the Sierra, particularly at night, is going to be colder than it would be in the summer, and you might get the first winter storms. In fact, I had one very windy cold day and I had one day of snow 
when I cross one of the high passes in snow. So obviously the equipment had to be a little more than I'd taken if I was just going to the high Sierra in the middle of summer because I knew I might have to deal with and did have to deal with freezing nights and possibly snow. Pack weight varied enormously, um, as always. I didn't, I didn't weigh the pack at the beginning. The one time I weighed it during the walk, it came in at 34 pounds. And that was when I was carrying the bear-resistant container, which was a legal requirement in the High Sierra. I didn't carry that in the desert section. Um, and about three days' food. The heaviest the pack was, I didn't actually weigh it, but when I left Lone Pine for the start of the desert section, I was carrying 11 litres of water because it was 55 miles to the first guaranteed water source. Gosh, okay. So so the bit that you were describing earlier on then when you were looking for the routes over these ridges, you were presumably not carrying as much because the, I, I presume the water was plentiful at that stage. Um. The water in the High Sierra, there was a reasonable amount of water. There were a few times I was carrying two or three litres because I wanted to go beyond the water source of the camp. Um, In the desert, it was the opposite. Say, I I had 55 miles to go to find the first water, and that turned out to be correct. The other potential seasonal water sources were all dry which in the autumn is what you expect. So when I was climbing out of Long John Canyon, that was at the beginning of the desert section. So that's when I had the 11 litres of water. So I had a pack that I estimate was, because I had um, four days' food as well, probably weighed 50, 55 pounds. Gosh. But I got rid of the bear-resistant container um, because I didn't need that. For the desert section. Wow. Okay. So I mean, the packs could be pretty, uh, pretty flexible. I think it was. Um, I'm just trying to think what pack it was now. Is it, it ULA? ULA Catalyst. Okay. And that yeah. co- that coped with the variety of weight. Okay. Yeah. I mean, one reason I took that was bear-resistant containers are a real pain to pack. You know, because it's basically a large, hard plastic cylinder. And some packs, perfectly good packs, but they're not that wide. And if you stand this cylinder up in them and cram things around the side of it, it makes for a very awkward load and you can't get at stuff. And the cylinder won't go across the top of them. Now, the catalyst is a bit wider than a lot of lightweight packs. So the cylinder will fit in the top across the pack, which is you know, quite convenient. If you want to get anything out, you just take the cylinder out and all the rest of your gears underneath it. That said, I got used to having the cylinder, so having this all my food and this heavy weight at the top of the pack. Obviously, as the food goes down, you can store other stuff inside the cylinder. When I got rid of it and loaded the pack up with the 11 litres of water, which were in different bottles, So I had a heavy bottle either side inside the pack plus bottles in the mesh side pockets. The pack suddenly balanced a lot better because the weight was better distributed. 
I hadn't realised how much, how top-heavy it was with the bear-resistant container in. And obviously I'd adjusted to having that there. But with all the water in, even though it was a heavier pack, it actually carried better. I know the you've written in your blog that the first 13 nights were pretty well all below freezing, down to about minus 7.5, I, I think you've recorded. Yeah, yeah. So along the same lines that you have with the pack being able to take this huge variation in bulk and equipment from, from the food canister point of view and obviously the water, if you're going from desert or you're going from the high Sierra down to the desert, your your clothing variation had to cope with all that sort of uh, additional temperature range as well. But did you manage it by keeping things fairly simple? Yes. And I also, I managed it as well by using, you know, the PhD sleep system, which actually worked out even better. And it's not something I usually do. I mean, on previous walks, I've always gone with a sleeping bag that should keep me warm at the coldest temperatures expected. And if it's colder than that, well, I'll just have to sleep in clothes. On this trip, I thought, well, if I use the sleep system, the basic sleeping bag was rated to plus eight, and I expected most nights to be colder than that. But I had down clothing to wear in it. Now, this was a great boon in the high Sierra. Because of the bears, you don't cook and eat where you sleep because the smell of the food, the presence of the food, might attract a bear. So you cook and eat some distance away which means, of course, you're not lying in your sleeping bag, in your shelter, keeping warm. So having the down clothing, which was down socks, trousers and jacket, all in very soft fabrics, so they were comfortable to sleep in. I mean, I ended up, I thought of them as sort of down pyjamas. But that meant in the morning, when it was usually coldest, it's well below freezing, I could get up, keep the down clothing on and pad over to my kitchen area to have breakfast and a hot drink. Whereas if I'd taken less warm clothing but a thicker sleeping bag, I'd have been a bit colder. And it was with the temperatures, it was odd. I thought the coldest temperatures would probably come at the end of the High Sierra section when I was going to have my highest camps in the High Sierra and it would be later in the season. But in fact, they came mostly in the second week. And after two weeks, I didn't have another night where the temperature fell below freezing. I know that the layering sleeping system is is, a, is starting to be a common approach now that a lot of people are, are using them, in my experience, of having insulated clothing to, to camp in and then, as you say, sliding into a lower-rated sleeping bag for, for comfort. But when you said you have to cook and sleep some distance apart, how far are we talking from a bear point of view? Um, it varied depending on the site, but it was always at least um, 50 feet, more, usually more like 100. But it all depended you know, wh- where there was you could sleep and where there was a suitable um, kitchen area. And I presume you have to hang the canisters uh, when no, you're... No, oh, you don't? No, the, the big advantage of the canisters is when you're camping. All you do is put them out in the open. Right, presumably a fair, fair way away from the tent. Yeah, and somewhere... The bears learn fairly quickly they can't get into them. 
so generally they ignore them. But you want them somewhere where if a bear does decide to play with one, it can't knock it over a cliff or bash it against a rock. So you want it in a flat area in the in the open. So if a bear knocks it over, you know, it doesn't nothing happens, it doesn't go anywhere. I mean the bears can't pick them up. One of the reasons they have to be the size they are is they have to be a wider diameter than a bear's jaws. So the bear can't get its jaw around them. As somebody who's who's not camped in the Sierras or, or that sort of uh, location, those kind of conditions, environment, uh, do, does does this apply to anything uh, from a bear point of view? That is, does it apply not just to food like your snacks and chocolates or whatever else, but also to things like suntan cream, anything that's sort of pungent? Yes. Oh, yeah, very much. So yeah, sunscreen, toothpaste, anything like that has to go in the container. Every month, we're holding a special competition where you can win some fabulous outdoor gear. It's a great way to support the outdoor station. The more entries we get, the better the future prizes. During the month of December, the prize is a complete hammock camping setup by DD Hammocks. And this includes a Multicam Frontier Hammock, a Multicam 3x3 tarp, the tarp DVD, 30 metres of Multicam cord, and to finish off your hammock camping look, a DD sweatshirt, a DD t-shirt and a DD cam to a total combined value of £158. Simply answer the following question and text in your A, B or C answer before the closing date of the 31st of December and you will be automatically entered. You can enter a maximum of five times from the same UK-registered mobile phone number. So this month's question is, the mountain Ben Nevis is located in which country? Is it A, Scotland, B, England or C, Wales? To be in with a chance of winning, all you have to do is text OUTDOORS and your answer of A, B or C to 82055. Or post your answer with your name and contact phone number to competition, the outdoors station, unit 19 Signet Business Centre, Hanley Swan, Worcester, WR80EA. Entries are open to anyone aged 16 plus and you must have the bill payers' permission. Texts cost £1 plus your standard network rate and the competition closes at the end of each month. Entries received after that date will not count, but you may still be charged. The winner will be contacted within three days of the competition closing and they may appear in future programmes. For full rules plus terms and conditions, please go to theoutdoorstation.co.uk slash competitions. Now, the notes that I've made here uh, tells me that um, you had 21 wild camps, five campgrounds, six in accommodation, 13 nights of which were under the stars, and eight under your trail star. Tell me a bit about the variety of, of camps that you had, if you don't mind. Okay. Well, a lot of the camps in the High Sierra were in the forest, and that's generally where it was windless, so I'd sleep, sleep out not bother with the trail star at all. Um, I enjoyed those camps. They weren't what you would describe as scenic, because for most of them, all you could see were trees. But as I really like the huge variety of trees in the Sierra Forest, I found them very, very restful. A lot of those camps, they they were well used, and there'd be a fire ring. And that would be where my kitchen would be. 
because I had the um, Trail Designs TriStar stove with the Inferno wood burning inset. So I'd set this up inside the firing and cook over wood, which is what I did most of the time in the High Sierra. So a mini campfire inside that stove. Some places in the Sierra I had higher camps where I had a view. Sometimes I found a site that wasn't well used by going off the trail. I, you know, I remember once in the mouth of Evolution Valley, I saw a bluff as I was climbing up um, into Evolution Basin. And I thought, that looks like it might be flat, there might be a site there. And I wandered over to it, and there was. That had a fantastic view um, of a pointed peak called the Hermit. So that was one of the more memorable camps. Most memorable in the High Sierra was I camped before the ascent of Mount Whitney at Guitar Lake at about 11,000 feet, so well above the trees there, um, and just camped in this huge rock basin with Mount Whitney, which, of course, is another four and a half, four thousand feet higher, towering above me. So that, I think, was the high point of the camps in the Sierra. In the desert, of course, there were no well-used campsites, and it was a question of finding a site. The trail star was used if, if it was windy, just to keep the wind off. Now, the few times I used it in the Sierra, any sort of tarp or shelter would have done. But on the desert section, I had two extremely windy nights where I was really glad you know, of the uh, trail star's windshedding properties and where with a lighter tarp or even some of the lightweight backpacking tents, I probably wouldn't have slept well. But the trail star in strong winds really is rock solid. So it was worth taking, you know, just for those two nights. And so the night sleeping under the stars then, well, I guess there's obviously no fear that the weather's going to change. It's going to be a fairly still and starry night. Yes. Yep. Um, If it was windy or if there were clouds, which was rare, then I'd pitch the trail star. But generally, the, the pressure was steady, the sky was clear, and it was going to be clear the next day as well. So what about the practical things that uh, while camping or, or, or camping under the stars could involve, especially in a, an alien country that you're, well, you're probably familiar with, but I wouldn't be familiar with, and probably a lot of our listeners. Uh, what about bugs, snakes, things that go bite you in the night? Do you, did you worry about that type of thing, or was there anything like that that played on your mind? No. <laughs> uh, most most creatures, virtually all creatures, they're going to avoid you. So you're not in, you know, you're not in any any danger while you're sleeping out. So I don't think I even really thought about that at any time. And of course, the trail star wouldn't be any protection for anything like that because it, you know, it's a roof. You're not you're not enclosed in it. So you didn't take a, a bivy or, or anything with a with a mesh covering your face just no. in case? No. No. Well, my view was if I thought I might need a bivy bag for whatever reason, then I'd pitch the trail star. Right. And I was thinking more of just, well, I get bitten to death when I go to any country, so I'm just concerned about, I don't know, light, nighttime insects, really. Well, 
the time of year I went meant there weren't going to be problems with mosquitoes. Now, a lot of those forest camps in the Sierra, if I'd been there in July and early August, I would definitely have taken a mesh in a tent because then you get mosquitoes and they will bite you. So it does depend on the time of year. You can't always go to the high Sierra and know that you'll have no problems with insects. But the mosquito season is sort of around six weeks after snow melt, and then they disappear. So obviously by when I was starting, late September, they should have been gone for weeks. And when you use the campsites, um, presumably not just the, the cleaning facilities they must have offered, but did you get talking with, with other hikers at all? There was, was there any sort of comparison of of gear or, or discussions of routes or that you were doing something really wild? What was the general sort of feeling towards you? I Yeah, I'm at two of the places where I resupplied um, little mountain resorts, basically in the middle of nowhere, at Red's Meadow and um, Lake Edison, Vermilion Resort, I met the sort of last of the season's John Muir Trust and Pacific Crest Trail hikers. Uh, and mostly, most of the discussion was about the weather, because in both cases they were doing routes where a big storm might stop them. Um, but we also discussed routes. I would say, overall, there was bafflement at what I was doing. Um, and, you know, like, you're not following the John Muir Trail. On Mount Whitney was the only place where I met many people on the trail because it is so popular coming up from the Owens Valley side, the opposite side to which I was approaching it. And there were a lot of day hikers and a lot of people who walk in, camp part way, and then do it as a day hike from their camp. Um, and the one thing I noticed in terms of gear, looking at what people were using, is how dominant Osprey packs are. I'd say 90% of the people I met, whether backpackers or day hikers, had Osprey packs. And my ULA pack was not recognized. Twice people came up to me and said, oh, that looks an interesting pack. I guess, I guess it must be from Britain. And then looked astounding when I told them it was made in Utah. Hmm. So what about, complete aside here now, you know, the old lightweight movement, which is, what, 10, 12 years old now, has it not made a major penetration into the sort of hiking people that you, you met along the way? I'd say it's, admit, it's made a partial penetration. In, I mean, not all, most of the backpackers I met were wearing trail shoes, not boots. And if they were wearing boots, they were very, you know, lightweight fabric ones. I only met a couple of people in traditional leather boots. The packs, whilst they're not, most of the pack, Osprey packs I saw were the lighter weight ones. So again, not ultra light, but certainly lighter than they would have been 20 years ago. And the same, I think, with clothing and gear. So I think the, the effect of the ultralight movement as if you, has been, if you like, to drag the mainstream to being more lightweight. But I didn't meet anybody who you would have described as an ultralight hiker. 
Mm. Just a quick aside, you said uh, as you the campsites you had resupply. Did you ship a parcel of what, what food or whatever from the UK, or did you do all that while you were in the states? No, I I, I bought food um, as I went along, so whatever was available. But I knew that most places, I mean Yosemite Valley, Red's Meadow, Vermilion Resort, Cedar Lodge in Kings Canyon to some extent, Lone Pine, are all places that are geared up to supplying hikers. So I was going to find suitable food. Doing it this way, in terms of the food costs, is more expensive, but if I'd been going to ship food to myself, I'd have needed more time in the States in order to buy it, pack it, and then mail it to myself. So then I'd have had the you know, extra time and the cost of staying somewhere and the mailing costs and so on. So I took the simpler option, which was, well, I'll buy whatever I can get along the way. In part two, we hear much more from Chris. His walking observations, such as walking for three days across the desert and arriving at water with very little in reserve. His camp routines, his gear list, and his very close encounter with a bear and two cubs. So I do hope you return for that one. My thanks do go, of course, to Chris Townsend for taking the time and to Eduardo Dorado, our executive producer. I've tried to put as many links, images, etc. over on the Outdoors website page associated with this podcast to everything that we've discussed. So do check that out. Maybe while you're there, fill out the newsletter page and see what you can add. It all helps us to grow and find and share new people, new places and new adventures in the world of self-powered travel. So until next time, folks, enjoy your Christmas shopping. But don't forget to get out there and enjoy a walk in the cold, crisp frost. So until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorstation.co.uk.